You're listening to Fox on the Wire podcast. And uh, my first guest in 1977, this gentleman released an album entitled Bat Out of Hell that was one of the most successful debut albums in rock history. Since then, he's done a lot of different things, and we're going to talk about some of those right now. Please welcome the legendary... <laughs> Meatloaf. Well, well, well. I had to dress up for this today. You look, you look great, and Spiffy. I, I enjoyed you laughing at your own introduction. I thought oh, yeah, that, yeah, well, that shows a, it's a introductions are always funny. Point of character there. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. Um, Here, I brought you a T-shirt. Oh, great! I enjoy, <laughs> enjoy T-shirts. Hey you... guys, just like always, band doesn't get one. You know what I mean? <laughs> And you brought enough of these for the audience? That's really nice. Yeah, they're seven fifty a piece for the audience. <laughs> That's always my philosophy. Just go out there and have fun. Try your hardest, give it everything you got. And if you win or lose, it doesn't make any difference. It's about how you feel about how you played the game. But I know that I'll never not give everything I have to every moment that I'm doing whatever I'm doing. It may not be good, but I'm trying. the Queen's Guard paying tribute to Meatloaf just outside Buckingham Palace just after Meatloaf passed away on January 20th 2022. My personal memories of Meatloaf is uh, waking up on a Saturday morning to video hits as a young teenager when his song I'd Do Anything For Love was on week after week and the really sort of the epic video, the epic visuals, and the massive song. I remember waking up to that almost every weekend for however long it was on top of the charts. And uh, also a friend at high school was a massive Meatloaf fan, and he'd walk around with his Walkman constantly playing Bad Out of Hell, and uh, he'd just randomly break out into song every now and again, and of course he copped a lot of crap for it. But as you get older, you realise the genius of musicians and artists like meatloaf you may not get it as much when you're a younger angry teen and later my musical world would collide with nikki six writing songs for meatloaf in 2003 nikki six of course from motley crew who i was also and still am a, a massive fan of uh nikki and james michael from 6am would write songs for Meatloaf's album Couldn't Have Said It Better, which of course for that reason that Nicky wrote songs for Meatloaf, I went straight out and got that album. Couldn't Have Said It Better was released on September 23rd, 2003. This was only the third time in Meatloaf's career that he released an album without songs written by Jim Steinman, who we'll obviously get into as we go through this episode. Meatloaf would claim that Couldn't Have Said It Better was the perfect album he did since Bat Out of Hell in 1977. It was not as successful. But at the time, that was a really cool thing for me, seeing Nikki Six come in and write songs for, you know, another artist, another massive artist, and that sort of crossed 
my musical world together even more. And I think from then on, you know, I guess I was getting older anyway, but I came to appreciate Meatloaf a lot more. And I think from then I went and got Bat Out of Hell and, you know, off you go from there. Uh, when I was a kid, I was so big. Mm. I mean, I was really big that I literally could not wear blue jeans. And and I would have to go down. My mother would take me to Sears, and they didn't make blue jeans that would fit me. So I wore, like, pleated pants in the first grade. And a commercial came on the air when I was about five or six years old from Levi's. And the commercial was, poor fat Marvin can't wear Levi's. Really? Yeah. And, and you were still called Marvin at the time? Well, no, I was called me, but, but people would call me Marvin. <laughs> and after that, nobody called me Marvin. And I went before a judge in Connecticut in 1984, and uh, I, I told him this story. Mm. And he said, and that's what he said to me, if it was today, you'd own the company. <laughs> and, and I said, he goes, so that's why you want to change your name to Michael? And I went, yes, sir. And he said, well, normally the process is about six weeks. But in your case, I understand completely. And he turned to his clerk and he said, give me the stamp. <laughs> and he stamped it and he handed it to me and said, Michael, have a great day. That's a great story. And uh, Are you now legally called Meatloaf? Uh, I had Meatloaf on my passport when we first were touring Bad Out of Hell. And uh, I went into Germany and shot my passport, and they kept me in immigration for six hours. <laughs> so I figured at that point it was probably the best thing to do was get meatloaf off my passport immediately, if not sooner. So what is on your passport? Michael. Michael Lee Day. So that's your problem. You go by that name yeah, legally. Since 1984. And what do you like to be called when you're your stage character? Do you like to be called meat, Mr. Loaf? Meat. 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 Yeah, the, meat. yeah the, the, the one person, the first person that ever called me Mr. Loaf was Clive Barnes. Mm. Uh, when I was doing As You Like It for Joe Papp, and, and he, he, he made a quote about Raul Julia and, and Mary Beth Hurt and myself, and he said, Mr. Julia, Miss Hurt, and Mr. Lowe. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a very nice quote that followed it. Michael Lee Aday, born as Marvin Lee Aday on September 27, 1947, in Dallas, Texas, was known around the world as Meatloaf, an American singer and actor. He was the only child of Wilma Arty, a school teacher and member of a gospel music quartet, and Orvis Wesley Aday, a former police officer who went into business selling a homemade cough remedy with his wife and a friend under the name Griffin Grocery Company. Meatloaf would later state in an interview regarding his birth that he was bright red and stayed that way for days and that his father said he looked like nine pounds of ground chuck and that he convinced the hospital staff to put the name Meat on his crib. So what happens is, as I'm listening back to the song, I'm starting to maneuver myself into the different characters. So you mean you don't sing as yourself? It's no. a more theatrical thing. You're, you're singing parts. See, I don't consider it theatrical. I consider it to be the truth. When you go to theater and you see great actors in a play, you almost float. It's almost a floating experience. They're not acting. They're telling you the truth in the moment. That's what I do in everything that I do. I, me, me, you're talking to Meatloaf, but... If you were to see me in a show, every song is a different character. And we don't stop. It's like a symphony. It just keeps going. You're like in a character symphony. throughout. Well, 
I'd switch them. So let's go back to 1965 where a day graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School having appeared in school stage productions such as Where's Charlie and The Music Man. He also played football in the position of defensive tackle as a member of the Rebels and earned the nickname of ML. But when his weight increased, this was changed to Meatloaf. When he was 19 years old, his mother died from cancer and his father allegedly tried to kill him with a knife after the funeral. Meatloaf used his inheritance he received from his mother's death to rent an apartment in Dallas and isolated himself for three and a half months until a friend found him. A short time later, he went to the airport and caught the next flight to Los Angeles. In LA, a day formed his first band called Meatloaf Soul, and the band received several recording contracts. Meatloaf Soul's first gig was in Huntington Beach in California in 1968 at The Cave, opening for Van Morrison's band Them and Question Mark and the Mysterians. Here's a clip of Meatloaf talking about his early years before he met Jim Steinman and before they would go on to record one of the greatest albums of all time, That Out of Hell. So I want to tell you a few things that got me started into this business. And the first one was when I was a sophomore in high school and I had to go to study hall the first semester. Well, my Indian name is Never Shuts Up. And so I couldn't stand study hall, so they had an elective. And the elective was drama. And I said, oh, that sounds like a good place to go. At least I can, don't have to be quiet. And uh, I went in to drama, you know, and sat in the back of the room and thought it was going to be funny. It really became part of me at that moment. And I went on and, and did plays in high school and did the lead in the musical my senior year. And, and eventually, I, uh, this is a true story, I go uh, to get a job at the Aquarius Theater parking cars because I needed money. And I'm standing at it 10 o'clock in the morning and there's about, it seemed like 40,000, there wasn't, but people lined up to audition for hair. And uh, a guy pulls up, and he gets out of the car, and my friend Barney says, this is Meatloaf. And he said, Meatloaf? And Barney goes, yeah. And he says, what do you do? I said, I'm an actor and a singer. And he said, well, why aren't you auditioning? And I said, I wouldn't stand in that kind of line for food. And uh, so he said, well, you don't have to stand in line. He said, come on in. So I went in. He, set me in. he said, sit in this seat right here. He walked down to some hippie-looking guy on a pillow, walked back to me and said, you go up next. So I walked up on the stage. Now, I don't know anything about music, and when I'm around musicians, I need an interpreter. But, so, but I did know this, and it made me sound really good. Uh, I need a 16-bar blues with no turnaround. I don't know. And so I sing a song, The World Is All Right, it's the people that make it bad. I got through the first verse, and this guy sitting on the pillow said to me, what are you doing tonight? And I said, well, I'm hoping that I get the job in the parking lot parking cars. And he said, well, how would you like to do the musical hair? And I said, great. So I got signed to do the musical in LA, but the guy that I signed up to replace never quit. So they came to me and they said, how would you like to go to New York and be on Broadway? And I went, okay. And after a while in New York, I met a fellow by the name of Joe Papp. 
And Joe Papp took me under his wing and really taught me how to act. And I became the 13th actor in history on salary full-time for the New York Public Theater. And Joe Papp, that night, 1971, really started my acting career. And I owe, I owe him, Lou Adler, and Jim Steinman so much. You can, I can never tell you. What would you define as your biggest break? Well, there's two of them. Mm -hmm. One was getting involved with Joseph Papp at the Public Theater, who uh, had the nerve, and I'll give him credit, to put me into two Shakespeare's in the park, and I've never read Shakespeare. Uh, I have now. I, I made it a point. Mm. On one tour, I read every Shakespeare play on days off. Um, and the other is Lou Adler from the Rocky Horror Show. Which did bring you quite a lot of fame. Yeah. I thought you were going to say something else. I thought you might say your biggest turning point was meeting Jim Steinman. Well, that, 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 that's an obvious one. But I met Steinman at Joe Papp. Right. I auditioned for Steinman. And so for people who, who don't know the meatloaf story so well, Jim Steinman is your collaborator, a guy who's written songs with you, going back. He's been one of my best friends for 46 years. I love him dearly. That was a bit of a lengthy clip, but I think it was important to let Meatloaf explain his early beginnings before he came to meet Jim Steinman and sort of what led to that and some of the important characters that did lead up to that uh, very important relationship between Jim Steinman and Meatloaf. So let's get into that now and let's talk about what would ultimately lead to the making of one of the most important albums of all time, That Out of Hell. So we could do a whole episode on Jim Steinman himself. He's a legend in his own right. You know, he's, he's had a massive career as a composer, a lyricist, and a producer for an array of artists and different styles. The records that he's worked on in his career have sold over more than 190 million copies worldwide. He's been nominated for four Grammys over the course of his career, and he won Album of the Year for his work on Celine Dion's 1996 smash, Falling Into You. Steinman began his career in musical theatre, writing and starring in a rock musical while in college called The Dream Engine, which garnered the attention of New York theatrical producer Joe Papp. After graduating, Steinman worked at the Public Theatre in New York, which Papp himself had established and juggled various projects. In 1973, Yvonne Alleman recorded Steinman's song Happy Ending, which became Steinman's first commercially released tune. In that same year, the public theatre staged his musical More Than You Deserve. One of the actors who auditioned for More Than You Deserve was Meatloaf, and he and Steinman soon struck up a close and personal professional relationship. The two began working on Meatloaf's proper solo debut, Bat Out of Hell in the early 70s, but the album wouldn't be released until 1977. When I first met him, I thought some geneticist should figure out what, what happened here. <laughs> Taking Pavarotti and plugging him into a Marshall amp, <laughs> turning it up to 11. It's a mixture of Spinal Tap and Pavarotti. <laughs> I immediately thought he was the perfect singer for me. I thought he was extraordinary. 
The first time I went to play, I knew that I didn't want to walk on the stage and just play and stand there and sing. I approach singing a song exactly the same way that I would approach a character doing a play or a film. The songs do not work unless I've built a character. The great thing about Meatloaf is he's his own special effect. And if you just focus on him, he's stunning as a, as a performer. And he'll be the first to say he thinks of himself as an actor rather than a singer. You have to be willing to go out on a line where nobody else is doing what anyone else is doing and sit out there. And when Bad Out of Hell came out, they threw everything, including I thought they were going to blow us up with dynamite at some point. My feeling about why Bad Out of Hell was special for its time is that it would be special in any time. And partly that's the answer, that I think it's timeless in the sense that it didn't fit into any trend. It's never been part of what's going on. You could, you could release that record at any time and it would be out of place, so to speak. Because when that album came out, in October of 1977. That's right. Everybody hated it. We were turned down by everybody, every record company, four times. And if it wasn't for little Steven in the E Street Band that mm. plays with Bruce, that record would have never come out mm. because th there was a gentleman who used to be head of A&R at Epic who started his own label. And little Steven said to him that the beginning of Took the Words was the best 20 seconds in rock and roll history. And so Steve Popovich believed everything little Steven told him. Right. And so he, and signed, he took you on. And he signed. But you know what? So just touching a little bit more on that, it was with the help of uh, Bruce Springsteen's sideman, Steven Van Zant that Bat Out of Hell was acquired by Cleveland International, which was a subsidiary of Epic Records. Steve Popovich, who eventually signed you, and, and obviously the record became a, a, a massive worldwide hit, he said this. He said, I was reluctant for so long because he said Meatloaf was too fat, too ugly, his hair was too long, and his voice was too operatic. But why did people get, get it so wrong, do you think? I mean, is that, that seems so no, superficial. That, well, they're not wrong. I was, I weighed about <laughs> 310 pounds. I wasn't ugly. I disagree with them on that. And I am, my voice is naturally operatic. Mm. I'm a held in tenor. Mm. Bat Out of Hell is often compared to the music of Bruce Springsteen, particularly the album Born to Run. Steinman says he finds that puzzling musically, although they share influences. Steinman said, Springsteen was more of an inspiration than an influence. Now before we get too far into Bat Out of Hell, we better bring another character into the story. The producer, of course, is Todd Rundgren. In a late 1980s interview with Classic Rock magazine, Steinman labelled Todd Rundgren as the only genuine genius I've ever worked with. Meatloaf later revealed that Jimmy Levine and Andy Johns were both potential candidates for producing Bat Out of Hell before being rejected by the singer and Steinman in favour of Todd Rundgren. Meatloaf later revealed that Jimmy Levine and Andy Johns were both potential candidates for producing Bat Out of Hell before being rejected by the singer and Steinman in favour of Todd Rundgren. Rundgren found the album hilarious, thinking it was a parody of Springsteen. I wasn't doing a lot of production at the time, and, and uh, this mutual acquaintance brought them as a, as a proposed co-production. At least that's what he told me. They had no intention of making a co-production. They just wanted me to produce it. So um, 
they set up a little uh, performance, just Jim Steinman on the piano, Meatloaf, and a couple of background singers. And he went through all their material, and again, it was something that was so strange that I had to get involved in it. You know, it was totally untypical. And uh, little did I know <laughs> at the time, little did anybody know what far-reaching significance the record would have. Jim Steinman had a lot, of, a lot of input, although I was involved a lot in the arrangements. You know, he would have suggestions, and I would have to come up with concrete results. It is essentially Jim Steinman's trip. Even Meatloaf was sort of like the Trojan horse inside of which Jim Steinman, you know, wrote his songs, you know, and used Meat's vocal cords because he would tell him exactly how to sing everything as well. I was fairly satisfied from a musical standpoint. I certainly never expected it to be that large, you know, I expected it to be just sort of regular. Much like other great albums over time, this album didn't take straight away. Released in October of 1977, the album made little impact until months after its release. Rungdrin actually credits the record company for the album's success. I credit a lot of the success of it to the record company And at this point. You know, you can credit a lot of failure and a lot of success to various records to the record company, not necessarily to the record itself. And in this case, the record company refused to let it die, because when it first came out, it didn't really do anything. And they just worked on it for a year endlessly. And after the year, it started to happen. And then once it started to happen, it happens in a big way. Rungdren initially mixed the record in one night. However, some of the mixes were unsuitable to the extent that Meatloaf did not want Paradise by the Dashboard Light on the album. Jimmy Levine, who had mixed Springsteen's Born to Run, remixed the song Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. After several attempts by people, John Jansen mixed the version of Paradise by the Dashboard Light, the version that is on the album, along with All Revved Up and No Place to Go. According to Meatloaf, he, Jansen and Steinman mixed the title track, Bat Out of Hell. Now here's the, uh, the famous motorcycle guitar. I was obsessed, of course, not only with having a motorcycle crash, but having a motorcycle in the song. And I kept saying to Todd, well, where's the motorcycle? Kind of whining, I'm sure, getting on his nerves when it probably wanted to slap me. Where's the motorcycle? And finally, like at the last overdub session, I realized there was no motorcycle. I said, Todd, you promised we'd have a motorcycle. And he said, oh, God, you really want a motorcycle on top of everything else? And I said, yeah, can't we have a motorcycle? You know, and it should be sound effects, right? He said, no, I don't have any sound effects. I'll just do it with my guitar. This is where Todd, back it up just a little bit. This is where P- Todd, <clears throat> in his one take on the lead guitar track, stopped it and said, Oh, you want a motorcycle, huh? Okay, watch this. And he did a few knobs. Now we just, I want to solo this and just listen to him do the motorcycle and come out. Okay, go ahead. It's guitar. Never stops. Watch. Come right on to a solo. Never stopped it. But you're standing here watching Todd do this. Mouth open, going. Unbelievable. Meatloaf and Steinman famously fell out in the 80s following a series of legal and financial disputes, but Jim told Q Magazine that they reunited on Christmas Day in 1989 and sang Bat Out of Hell on piano. 
Here's Jim Steinman talking about working on Bat Out of Hell 2. I worked with Meat Last on Bat Out of Hell. I did that one record. And then about, you know, 12 years after that, for some reason, it just felt like the right time to do something. I don't know why, but we got together and it seemed like a good idea. I didn't call it Bad Out of Hell 2 just to identify with the first record. It really does feel like an extension of that. Um, it's a deeper exploration of it, let me put it that way. It was, a, it was a chance to go back to that world and and explore it deeper. And it did always feel incomplete. I mean, because I did conceive it like a film. And, you know, what would you do without Die Hard 2, you know? I'd Do Anything Love was the first song I wrote. And it was definitely a Beauty and the Beast kind of story. Beauty and the Beast is a beautiful love story. It needed to be that kind of gothic. If it was going to work, because story videos in Rockland, in a, if you're doing a story, 20% of the time they work, and 80% of the time they don't. So we were gambling big. But I was gambling on my ability to build a character and make that character, you know, cohesive with the rest of the piece and make it flow as a character even though we were doing you know the fast cuts that, that rock video do but still maintain that that character line through that video and and run that thread so I was relying on myself and Michael Bay and propaganda and the, the whole thing and I'm telling you I was a nervous wreck because all the, I think my career was on the line with this one but it it worked and it's really great Bat Out of Hell 2, Back to Hell, was released in September of 1993, 16 years after Meatloaf's first solo album, Bat Out of Hell. The album reached number one in the United States, United Kingdom and Canada. Five tracks off the album were released as singles, including I'd Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That, which reached number one in 28 countries. I'd Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That was written by Jim Steinman, and was released in August of 93 as the first single from the album Bat Out of Hell 2. The Power Ballad was a huge commercial success and was the best-selling single of 1993 in the UK. The song earned Meatloaf a Grammy Award for Best Rock Vocal Performance. On the fourth day, we're walking by me going, you know, any other video shoot that I'd ever done for four days, by the fourth day, I hate the song. I mean, I hate the song. And they go, this is a great song. We don't hate this song. This song is great. And then they would walk by me and go, but what is it that he won't do? <laughs> I would do anything for love. I'd run right into hell and back. I would do anything for love. I'll never lie to you, and that's a fact. But I'll never forget the way you feel right now. No way. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. What won't I do? Uh, what, what he won't do is said about six times in the song. Um, very specifically. It sort of is a little puzzle, I guess it goes by, but they're all great things. They're all things, I won't stop doing beautiful things, and I won't do bad things. It's a very noble, I mean, I'm proud of that song because it's very, it's very much out of like the world of Excalibur to me. It's like Sir Lancelot or something, very noble and chivalrous. That's my favorite song on the record. It's, it's the most ambitious. Jim does not write from what he believes or what happens to him. 
he creates worlds. Everything I do, I think, is dictated by the dramatics, by the fact that it's a character singing in a dramatic situation, and I try to be incredibly true to that. You know, you have to find positive in everything you do, and you, that keeps you moving forward, and you have to be willing to learn. And it's like, that's, that's my goal, and the minute that I ever stop learning, in this business, that's when I, it's time for me to go. Everything to me is the songs. Everything serves the song. I, I feel very much like a parent, that they're, they're, they're my children, the songs, but I'm very protective of the songs. It's, it's hard enough writing them for me. It's a torturous process, and it's like taming a wild beast. So I just, I just want to learn constantly. That's it. I want to be a better, better, better everything. In a 2010 interview with CBS News, Meatloaf described being in Dallas in 1963 and meeting US President John F. Kennedy when he arrived at Dallas Love Field on November 22, 1963. Shortly afterward, while he and a friend were driving on the city streets, he heard about the assassination of John F. Kennedy and drove to Parkland Hospital. A US government official jumped in their car to get to the hospital immediately and Meatloaf was ordered to stay in the parking lot until the official returned. Here's Meatloaf telling that amazing story. Everyone in the world remembers where they were November the 22nd, 1963, if they were alive. They remember. Where were you November the 22nd? Except two or three years old, you wouldn't remember. No, I'm, but I'm older you, than if that. If you were 12. Very well. Okay, every where was I? Okay, yeah. in Dallas, I grew up in Dallas. So in Dallas on that day, even though Texas really said they weren't for JFK, they were. If you had a note from your parents, you were out of school. Hmm. So, and I had what they called a hardship driver's license. So I had a 1958 Buick Special. I was only supposed to drive back and forth to school. Yeah, that happened. <laughs> so anyway, my friend Billy Slocum and I, can't, uh, Jimmy McWhorter, I just remembered his name. Good Lord, that's good. So because of you. So. It was Jimmy McWhorter, Billy Slocum, and myself in the car to go to Love Field to see JFK. We got to Love Field. We parked. There were so many people. And Jimmy McWhorter's father worked at the airport. And so Jimmy says, my dad said he's going out this gate. We, yeah. He goes, yeah, I think he does. So we drove to that gate yeah. and parked. And there was two policemen, or I don't know, but there's policemen standing next to us. And Billy, I'm, I'm the quiet one. Billy goes, says to him, what would, you, what would you do if I told you I had a gun in my pocket? <laughs> Nothing as long as I didn't see it. So, okay. So now JFK did come through that gate. They opened the gates, but he stopped because people were there. Not yeah. very many. But my friend Billy went out and shook his hand. Wow. Uh, Mind-boggling. So we had friends. Well, they had friends. I was just driving. They, they had friends because they, they had money. So they put money into a show for the Kingsman who did Louie Louie yeah. oh, yeah. at, at Market Hall. Hmm. One of those. So they knew the backstage guys. And so we were going to Market Hall to kind of watch his speech. But before that, we decided to go to Mickey Mantle's bowling alley. Mickey Mantle's from Dallas. So, so anyway, we got to Mickey Mantle's. The entrance was no longer the entrance. There's a woman at a switchboard. And we're standing there and we're trying to figure out. And she goes, the president's been shot. And we looked at her and went, come on. 
And she goes, no. My friend went over, I don't know which one. I think it was Jimmy. Went over and listened and goes, it is. It's true. So we're running through the parking lot going, the president's been shot. And they're screaming, you kids, stop that. And so we get in the car. Where are they going to take him? Parkland. We used to go there to watch uh, people with gunshots come in. That was after dates. So anyway, I know. Weird. I grew up in Texas. What do you want to know? So I, come on. My name's me. I got a cousin named Pudgy. <laughs> so we get in the car and one of them, go, one of them says, they're going to take him to Parkland. I go, okay, let's go to Parkland. So it wasn't very far away. It yeah. may have been a mile and a half, truly a mile and a half from, from where we were. Because Mickey Mantle didn't Parkland in the uh, arena or whatever it was, Market Hall. And so we're driving down a, a road called Stemmons Freeway. It's still there. And there's a guy in the middle of the road. And I'm going, what's this guy doing out there? I, I'm not saying it. I'm thinking it. And I move, change lanes. It's only three lanes. So I change lane. He jumps over. Now, of course, going slower. And slow, and so I go back to the center. He cheat. I go over here. He jumps, and eventually I go okay. So he stops, and he slams a badge. And I've talked to Billy about this in the last three years, mm. and both of us will swear that he said Secret Service, Secret Service, move over, and he wanted my car. I screwed over. I'm petrified, and he's driving. Now we're going fast. We're driving speeding. And there's already uh, sharpshooters on the ground in the front of Parkland Hospital, and they're on the roof. And I can see, you know, you see these things. And we drive in, and he goes, you kids don't move. And I'm scooting over to Billy like this. And so I sit there, like, next to Billy like this. Didn't move. And so we sit there for a while, and, and Bill was the, he was best-looking captain of the football team, dated the prom queen, you know, did the whole thing. He was the whole, the whole caboodle, Bill Slocum was. Race, I won't get into it. Bull riding, motorcycles, you name it. So anyway, I eventually moved over, and one of them said, let's get out. So we did. Now, today, that limousine would have been surrounded, but the limousine was just parked over there. And we went over, there's roses, there's blood, there's... Oh, man. It was... It was but it was beautiful but morbid at the same time and so then we went back and they're talking to some guy you know and so then the guy we go let's go get in the car so the the secret service guy comes back and goes i'm going to give you a hundred dollars said oh no we can't take that he goes well i'll take five i'll give you five my friends go yeah take five so we tore the five into three pieces you still have that uh, yeah that's a whole nother story (laughs) <laughs> I'm sure I, it is. It is. Trust me. <laughs> Billy still has his. Yeah. I don't know, but I don't know where the other person is. Yeah. Billy still has his, and it's framed like mine was. Wow. And so, it, unbelievable. And so, we, here's the kicker. We go to school, and we're late for football practice, but they're not having it. And they go, where are you guys? Where were you guys? We go, we were at Parkland. Yeah, right. Stop lying. Tell me where you really were. We were at Parkland. All right. You sit down, you're running laps tomorrow. So they let us go. I go home. I tell my mother we were at Parkland. My mother, my, mother, uh, my grandfather was a minister. My mother was a real Christian. Uh, Sunday morning, night, Wednesday, Sunday school, vacation Bible school, the whole shooting match, mm-hmm. okay? 99, when I went to college, I went to Lubbock Christian, and now that I'm 
saw somebody in love with Christian, they go, you're immortal there. I'm going, why? <laughs> but I did score 99 on my Old Testament and 97 on New Testament. So I was in the top five Old Testament scores. I'm, I'm very impressed with that. I think I'll uh, find that test and we'll give it to you again, see if you still uh, I, remember I probably, all that. No, I was reading the Bible the other day going, I don't remember any of this. <laughs> so anyway, they didn't believe us. So let me, I told my mother, she didn't say anything. So that night, they were showing footage in Dallas of Parkland Hospital, and all of a sudden, there we were. <laughs> we were on TV. After your mother said, there's no way that you were there. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, she didn't. She was polite. Yeah. The coaches were going, stop lying. Yeah. Sit down. I won't tell you the rest of it. So all of a sudden, I'm going, look. And, and the announcer goes, and here's three teenagers talking to a senator from Illinois. And it was Billy talking to a senator from Illinois. Uh. And there we were on TV. And every once in a while when they do uh, a JFK, I'm there. You know, we all remember where we were. I doubt anybody has as vivid a memory as you do Not as a like high that. school kid. I don't know how many people got pulled over by the Secret Service and driven into Parkland. Well, it's never happened to Keith, Trey, or me. I can attest I, to that. I don't think it's happened to anybody else. I mean, it's an amazing story. And when I tell people, because I've, I've said to people, you'll never believe where Meatloaf was on the day of the Kennedy assassination. And, and when I tell what I knew about your story, People just say, no way, man. No yeah, way. No way. You were like Forrest Gump. You were there. Okay. I am, we, I, in a sense, I am like Forrest Gump. Well, you've been everywhere. But because there's a story. Those you, kind of things, those kind of things, like the Secret Service guy, yeah. those kind of things have happened in my life more than one time, trust me. On November 17th, 2003, during a performance at London's Wembley Arena on his Couldn't Have Said It Better tour, Meatloaf collapsed of what was later diagnosed as Wolf-Parkinson-White Syndrome, a condition marked by an extra electrical pathway in the heart which causes symptoms like a rapid heartbeat. The following week, he underwent a surgical procedure intended to correct the problem. As a result, Meatloaf's insurance agency did not allow him to perform for any longer than one hour and 45 minutes. In February of 2004, during an Australian tour, Meatloaf performed with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra in a set of concerts recorded for the album Bat Out of Hell, live with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Meatloaf and Steinman had begun to work on the third instalment of Bat Out of Hell when Steinman suffered a heart attack. According to Meatloaf, Steinman was too ill to work on such an intense project, while Steinman's manager said health was not an issue. Steinman had registered the phrase Bat Out of Hell as a trademark in 1995. In 2006, Meatloaf sued Steinman and his manager in federal district court in Los Angeles seeking $50 million and an injunction against Steinman's use of the phrase. Steinman and his representatives attempted to block the album's release. An agreement was reached in July of 2006. Denying reports in the press over the years of a rift between Meatloaf and Steinman in an interview with Dan Rather, Meatloaf said he and Steinman never stopped talking and that the lawsuits reported in the press were between lawyers and managers and not between Meatloaf and Steinman himself. The album Bat Out of Hell 3, The Monster is Loose, 
was released on October 31st, 2006, and was produced by Desmond Child. The first single from the album, It's All Coming Back To Me Now, was released on October 16th, 2006. The album debuted at number 8 on the Billboard 200 and sold 81,000 copies in its opening week. What's happened in the past has no relevance now. It's how you do your work. Not how many records you sell, not how much money you got in the bank, not anything. It's how you do your work. And when you're doing it, did you give it everything that you possibly can give? And if it's bad, it's bad. And you just deal with it on that level. See, Bad Out of Hell was successful before it ever sold a copy. Because Bad Out of Hell was successful to me because it was the record that I wanted. In other words, it served its purpose right from the time it was made. It was done, and it was exactly what we wanted it to be. In 2012, Meatloaf gave a speech inducting Jim Steinman into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Meatloaf praised Steinman, saying there is no other songwriter ever like him. I can never repay him. He has been such an influence. In fact, the biggest influence on my life. I learned so much from him and there would be no way I could ever repay Mr. Jim Steinman. In April of 2021, Mr. Jim Steinman passed away in Connecticut in the USA due to kidney failure. In an interview with Rolling Stone in April of 21, following Steinman's death, Meatloaf was quoted as saying, we belonged heart and soul to each other. We didn't know each other, we were each other. I stood in front of Elvis like a complete moron because he saw the Rocky Horror Show. And he, good, you did a good job, not son. Thanks, thanks. Did you find it, you know, and he was asking me these questions and you find it difficult to, uh, one, no sir. And uh, I just, and he goes, uh-huh. Waiting for some response other than like one word from me. And I stood there and went, okay, well, thanks, bye. And left. I don't think it's a varied career. I think it's just, uh, I think a lot of rock performers could do a lot of different things if they geared themselves to go for it, you know? But I think they're scared. They, they're afraid to take the steps. They're successful in one area. They're afraid to take steps in the other area and be a failure in another area. Some people are afraid to put themselves on the line to go that far. I'm not, I don't care. You still say you see yourself as an actor, not a musician. I am an actor. I am not, I have no, I, I can't even talk to musicians. All my friends from 1969 to the present day are actors. I'm not a singer. I'm an actor. Sadly, on the evening of January 20th, 2022, Meatloaf passed away in Nashville, Tennessee. He was 74. In a statement posted by the family following his death, it read the following. Our hearts are broken to announce that the incomparable Meatloaf passed away tonight, surrounded by his wife Deborah, daughters Pearl and Amanda, and close friends. His amazing career spanned six decades that saw him sell over 100 million albums worldwide and star in over 65 movies, including Fight Club, Focus, Rocky Horror Picture Show, and Wayne's World. Bat Out of Hell remains one of the top 10 selling albums of all time. We know how much he meant to so many of you, and we truly appreciate all of the love and support 
as we move through this time of grief in losing such an inspiring artist and beautiful man. We thank you for your understanding of our need for privacy at this time. From his heart to your souls, don't ever stop rocking. Tributes from fellow musicians flowed on social media. Alice Cooper shared, Meatloaf was one of the greatest voices in rock and roll, and he is certainly one of my closest friends in the business. He was really so much fun, truly fun to be around. He just felt like a best friend to everyone, no matter how long it had been since you last saw him. Scott Ian from Anthrax, who Meatloaf is actually his father-in-law, he said, There are so many stories to tell, and I know they will all be told over time. For now, what I know is Meatloaf's legacy will live through his family. Their forever love for their grandfather and father outweighs the heaviness of our hearts. Thank you everyone for their outpouring of love. We feel it. I love you, Meat. Paul Stanley from KISS. Meatloaf has passed away. So sad. He was one of a kind. Who could you ever compare him to? No one. That's how you define greatness. My condolences to his entire family. Cheap Trick. Meatloaf's first bat out of hell gig was with Cheap Trick in Chicago. What do I remember about him? That gig? He got booed off the stage and said he would never open any shows for us or anyone else. And he kept his promise. Dave Mustaine from Megadeth. My deepest sympathies go to the family of Michael Lee, or better known as Meatloaf. A giant in the industry and a giant amongst men. My condolences to his wonderful daughter, my friend Pearl, and the millions and millions of Meatloaf fans around the world. You will surely be missed. It's always a sad day when we lose legends like Meatloaf, artists that have been around for decades and decades, and most of us don't know our lives without them being alive. Meatloaf obviously gave us so much over his career, whether it was music, stage, or acting. He's left behind an amazing body of work, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode today. It's, uh, you know, with someone like Meatloaf, it's, it's really hard to fit his entire career into one episode but uh i hope you've learned a thing or two about meatloaf i know researching this episode i've learned so much about him so thank you meatloaf rest in peace and uh i hope you all enjoyed this episode thank you for listening anyway enough of my problems i'm sure you have your own and i hope that your problems get better because my wife keeps telling me You're going to be great. We're going to be great. And so I can't wait. And anyway, I love you. And like I said, keep rocking because that's what I want to do. Rock. Rock.